1 Samuel 1, 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, help us to understand your word as we journey back to Shiloh and the tabernacle there. Help us to see in Hannah ourselves and to see in her son, your son. For we ask it in his name. Amen. The New Testament, if you read it, as it talks about the church, you'll notice that it often talks of the church. It talks about Christians in very joyful, soaring, confident, optimistic language. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that Jesus is the head of all things in the universe because he's also the head of the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that all things belong to Christians, all things belong to the church because they belong to Jesus and because Jesus belongs to God. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that if anybody is already in Christ, he is now experiencing God's final new creation. And yet this triumphant language about the church so often clashes with our experience on the ground. This is the kingdom. This is the new creation. You look around on the fourth floor of Veritas Academy. Are you serious? The church is the heir of all things because it's being ruled by the head of all things. You look around at the way Christians are being treated in Nigeria. You think, really? This is it? We look at the church, we look at ourselves, we look at other Christians, and so often what we see is weakness, failure, struggle, scorn, indifference. How can something so little, made up of people so feeble, really be something that Jesus and his apostles can speak so confidently and joyfully about? Is God really at work here? Shouldn't we expect him instead to be working through the strong and the productive and the popular and the successful? The narrative of Samuel, First and Second Samuel are really one book that had to get chopped in half because their scrolls weren't big enough. It's really one book. The narrative of Samuel opens with this very tension. Where is God at work? What kind of people does he use to accomplish his purposes in a world that is so deeply twisted and corrupted? The book of Samuel, if you're reading through the Old Testament, the book of Samuel follows right on the heels of the book of Judges, which if you've ever read it, you know is an incredibly depressing book describing the moral and spiritual and social collapse of God's people not that long after they've received God's law from Moses and gone into the promised land. It's a story of their complete and utter collapse as they utterly refuse to listen to God and utterly refuse to respond gratefully to His grace. It's a very depressing book. It gets worse and worse as you go on. The book of Samuel, which follows right after it, especially in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, in the Greek version you have Ruth in between, The book of Samuel is all about how God is going to rescue and rule his people through his chosen king. It centers on King David, but as we will see, part of the point of Samuel is to show us that not even King David can come close to ruling over God's people in the way that God's king is supposed to. Even David, the best of the best, the best it's ever going to get for Israel, even David will leave us hungry for much, much more. But here at the beginning of the story, you see right away that God is the kind of God who works not through the mighty and the popular, but rather He's the kind of God who works through the weak and the helpless. He works through nobodies. And here we see Him working especially through one nobody in particular, an infertile woman named Hannah. In chapter 1, we have the narrative of a prayer being answered. And then in chapter 2, we have a poem of that answer being celebrated. Hannah's prayer answered, chapter 1. And in chapter 2, God's answer 
celebrated. Look at the beginning of chapter 1. Keep your Bible open. This is a long passage, and so it would be helpful for you to have a Bible open to jump around with me. Look at the beginning of chapter 1, where you have this family of nobodies introduced. You have a certain man from an obscure town called Ramathayim Zophim in the backwoods of an area called Ephraim. You hear a little bit about his genealogy, which is usually what you hear about when you're talking about important people. And so this one is a bit ironic because Elkanah is nobody of any real significance. You hear in verse 2 that he has two wives. And then you're supposed to think, whoa. The Old Testament never condemns polygamy, but it clearly teaches that monogamy is God's ideal and it repeatedly and constantly shows all kinds of problems that come out of polygamous marriages. Elkanah has two wives. One of them is named Hannah. The other one is named Penina. And you hear that Penina has children, but Hannah has no children. Elkanah probably took a second wife because his first wife could not give him any kids, which back then, even more than today, was vastly important, not only for your social standing, but even for your very physical survival in old age. And so here you have this family of nobodies. We have immediately zoomed in to a troubled marriage with infertility at the heart of it. Is that really where God's at work? Samuel says yes. Verses 3 to 8, we focus in on this poor woman mourning her infertility. We have Hannah's long grief in verses 3 to 8. Hannah's long grief. Every year this family goes up to a town called Shiloh, which at this point is where God's people went every year to worship God at that special tent that we learned about about a year ago called the tabernacle. The main priest there is Eli, and his two sons are priests with him. We're going to hear a lot more about them next week. Every year when this family goes up to worship God through a celebratory meal, Elkanah gives portions of food from their celebratory meal to Penina. And verse 4, all of her sons and daughters. You notice the emphasis there. Penina, the second wife, has tons of kids crawling all over her everywhere. But Hannah, we hear, has none. But the text says to Hannah, Elkanah gives a double portion. She gets two servings of mac and cheese because he loves her, even though the Lord has closed her womb. But her grief here is not just that she's infertile, and it's not just that she and they know that God is the one who has ultimately closed her womb, the God who they're there to worship. Her grief is also that Penina is her constant enemy, constantly teasing her and mocking her and irritating her. It says that her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. Therefore, Hannah wept and she would not eat. And so you can imagine Penina rolling up next to Hannah in her minivan loaded with kids. You can imagine her unpacking her quadruple stroller out of the trunk right there in front of Hannah, smirking at her. Or maybe you can imagine, somewhat anachronistically, you can imagine Penina attending church with Hannah on Mother's Day. And then afterwards, they did this at my church when I was a kid, they gave out roses to all the moms. 
Penina gets her rose. Hannah gets none. Penina gets invited to the mother-daughter tea in the church fellowship hall. Hannah does not. They gather now to worship the very God who's made her infertile. And so you can also imagine her mocking Hannah. Maybe you just aren't praying hard enough, Hannah. Maybe God doesn't like you. Maybe you've done something wrong. And it goes on and on, year by year, over and over, the text emphasizes, so that Hannah can't even eat the extra food that her husband is giving her as a pathetic sop for her sorrow. You can hear him in verse 8 speaking like so many frustrated husbands do. He's trying to help, but he's just making it worse. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You hear what he's saying? He's saying, Hannah, get over it. Aren't you just be happy? Am I ever going to be able to make you happy? Can't I ever do enough for you? Year by year, on and on, Hannah's long grief. Are you in a place like Hannah today? Are you low and lonely, forlorn and forgotten, depressed and discouraged? Look at verse 9. We've had Hannah's long grief, but now we see that one year Hannah makes a desperate plea. We move from her long grief to her desperate plea. You begin to see here that God is at work through Hannah, bringing his great king into the world. First in verses 9 to 11, as we consider her desperate plea, we see her weighted prayer. She rises, taking an active posture, and we are told right away that Eli the priest is sitting down. That's important. He's doing something passive. She's doing something active. This contrast will show up more next week. In deep distress, with tears streaming from her face, she's crying out to the God who's closed her womb, pleading with him that he might now open it. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but you'll give your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. The reason I say this is a weighted prayer is because you can see here that it's no ordinary prayer. She's using the very same language that we have at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. Same language that Exodus uses in Exodus chapter 3 to describe God's response to Israel's misery in Egyptian bondage. In Exodus 3, you hear that God sees the affliction of Israel You hear that he remembers them. He remembers the covenant he made with their fathers. And that it's in this loving remembrance of his people that God is moved to rescue them from their terrible grief. And so you can see here that grieving fruitless Hannah is a representative of all of grieving fruitless Israel. And indeed all of God's people down through the ages. The book of Judges has just underscored for us, one page prior, it has just underscored for us how hopelessly needy God's people are. That they cannot possibly help themselves. They 
and we are supposed to go to God like Hannah does here, casting ourselves upon him in deep dependence, seeking the help that only he can give. But this passage is not a veiled promise that God will answer all of our prayers to fix all these kinds of problems like fertility if only we have enough faith like Hannah does. We should pray these kinds of prayers to God. We should seek his help in all of our sadness. He can do anything he wants. He's a God of miracles. But really, this is a passage about how God is bringing his kingdom rule on earth. It's about how God is going to bring about the kind of rescue and restoration that his people need most. It's about how God's going to deal with the problem beneath all of our other problems. This deal about the razor, I'm not going to let a razor touch his head. It speaks to something called the Nazarite vow back in the Old Testament by which somebody would totally dedicate themselves to God's service. Samson does this. John the Baptist probably does this too. Like Hannah, Israel needs a son who will be fully dedicated to the Lord. And in this dedication to God, in this holiness before God, will bring about God's kingdom rule on earth. Will it be Hannah's son? Will he be the one to do this? Will it be David? Or will Israel's true and holy son be somebody else? Her weighted prayer, she's desperately seeking God's favor as a representative, a type of God's people in their own dire straits from which they cannot possibly save themselves. And now we have a weighted interruption. Verses 12 to 16, Hannah is prayerfully grieving before the Lord, and the priest Eli is watching what's happening from his little priestly seat right there. He thinks, though, that she's just another lush who's gotten carried away at the celebratory meal, and so he takes her to be a drunken woman. He says to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine, woman. We are meant to think here, what a moron. Rather than fostering and encouraging the worship of God's people, this priest of God is stupidly inhibiting them as he insensitively misreads what's going on with them. And so you see here this contrast, this irony. The high-status priest cannot hold a spiritual candle to this low-status woman. Eli is totally clueless. The next couple chapters of 1 Samuel will show us that even more. His interruption is weighty. It's weighted because it hints at the spiritual rot at the very heart of Eli's priestly calling at this stage in Israel's history. And so also the priestly blessing, if we know the story that's coming, the priestly blessing that he pronounces upon her when he realizes what's going on, that blessing also is weighted. In wishing her that God will answer her prayer, Eli does not know what we will soon find out. That her son that she's praying for will be directly involved in the disastrous downfall both of Eli and his family. Hannah's grief, Hannah's plea, and now in verses 19 to 28, Hannah's sacrifice. In verses 19 and 20, they head back home. We hear that the Lord remembers Hannah echoing this language from Exodus 3 again. In due time, she conceives and bears a son, and she calls his name Samuel, for she says, I've asked for him from the Lord. God really is at work through this nobody, the lowest of the low, the weakest of the weak. He's going to use her precious little baby boy to bring about his kingdom on earth. 
But that little boy is not going to be with her for very long. This baby that she's wanted for so many years, that she's wanted so badly from God, is going to go back to God. Like all of us should be, Hannah is willing to give back to God what was really his in the first place, even though it's deeply precious to her. She sacrifices her own son in fulfillment of the vow that she made to God. And you can see over and over through these verses about how her baby, he's destined to be in God's presence. He's destined to be in God's service. We keep hearing this kind of stuff over and over again. In verse 22, we hear that he's going to dwell forever in the Lord's presence. In verse 24, after she's weaned him, she brings him to the Lord's house. In verse 28, she gives him to the Lord for as long as he's going to live. And then we hear that what he's doing there is worshiping the Lord his entire life. The chapter starts with Hannah without a son. And so the chapter ends with Hannah without a son. But the chapter also ends now with God having a son. Foreshadowing, I think, how God's own eternal son, Jesus, after the resurrection, would return into the Father's presence to lead God's people in worship for as long as he lives, which is a big point in the letter to the Hebrews. How long is Jesus alive after the resurrection? Forever. He's always going to be our priest. He's always going to lead us in worship. So chapter 1, you have the story of a prayer answered. Chapter 2, you have the poem of an answer celebrated. God is at work through people like Hannah to bring about his kingdom rule on earth. That prayer that we pray every week, thy kingdom come, God answers it through people like Hannah. And in this wonderful poetic prayer, we see why and how God works through such weak and helpless people. It's the complete opposite of what the world expects. It's the complete opposite of how the world operates. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that God purposefully chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in his presence, so that we don't have a leg to stand on. That's exactly what Hannah's prayer is about. She starts in verses 1 to 2 by expressing her incredible joy. She rejoices in the Lord, and she says, like a ferocious and mighty animal, this little lady says her horn is exalted. Think of a bull or of a deer fighting. Uh, She says that her mouth mocks her enemies. Literally, it says, my mouth is open at my enemies. We're still on the ferocious animal imagery. Why? Because she rejoices in God's salvation. Notice it does not say that she rejoices in God's life hack. She rejoices in God's fix. She rejoices in God's update, advice, therapy, improvement. That's not what it says. It says that she rejoices, we rejoice in God's salvation. We sinful, needy, deathly people in such a broken and a twisted world need nothing less than complete and total rescue. We don't need a fix. We don't need advice. We don't need a little bit of help when we feel like asking for it. We need to be saved. For as she says here, there is nobody like God. There's no rock like our God. He is the Holy One. He is the Almighty and self-sufficient, self-existent creator 
of heaven and earth. And so Hannah reminds us in verse 3, how ridiculous to be arrogant and self-confident before such a God. She says, talk no more so very proudly, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. He sees and He knows not just what we do, but even what's in our hearts. Nothing slips by Him. You can't get away with using and manipulating other people for long. How dare we think that God might be fooled by empty prayers and token gestures. Verses 4 to 8 show that this mighty saving God is the God who works precisely through overturning the world's standards and expectations. He's the God of reversals. The God who works through the little and the low and the lonely. He favors the weak over the strong, the hungry over the full, the barren over the fertile, the dead over the living, the poor over the rich. Hannah says that he brings low and he exalts. She says it's not by might that a man prevails. That's not how our world works. God is not impressed with our achievements. He's not impressed with our efforts or our success or our intentions or our religiosity. God sees through all of it. He's there, Hannah says, on the garbage dump. He's there on the ash heap with people like Hannah. Are you one of these kinds of people? Are you feeling that particularly today? Weak people, helpless people, needy people, people who trust and depend on God. James chapter 4 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a good little summary of Hannah's song. In verse 9, she looks forward to the future. She says, God will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Where is God at work? Not among the strong. Not among the successful. He's at work through the little and the lowly. He's the mighty God who knows all things, who exposes all of our ridiculous pretensions. And now she's talking about what he's up to. Where is he going? Where is he taking everything? What's the direction this is all headed? She says in verse 10 that he's going to give strength to his king. He's going to exalt the horn of his anointed. The book of Samuel is going to play this out for us. It's going to show us how God raises up a king for himself even though even David is going to turn out to be something of a failure and a letdown. The entire Old Testament yearns for God's anointed king, what one hymn calls Great David's Greater Son. Hannah's prayer, of course, is ripped off by another childless woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary's own prayer, what we call the Magnificat of Luke chapter 1, her own prayer, obviously and clearly, is using many of the same phrases and ideas that Hannah does here, because her own son, Jesus, was this greater son of David. Like Hannah, Jesus was little, obscure, despised, and weak, especially on the cross. But he was also, most of all there on the cross, exalted, glorified. Because it was there that Jesus was accomplishing God's mighty and gracious salvation. 
God was redeeming us from our sin through Jesus. God was bringing us in an exodus, out of bondage. The Father exalts His anointed Son, Jesus, in the resurrection because the sad Jesus died a sad death to save us from our sins, to bring us with Him into the worshipful presence of God forever, to be not only our King, but also our priest. In this broken and frustrating and collapsing world, where is God working? What is He up to? Hannah shows us already that He's with people who are little and lowly. In all of our grief and helplessness, He's doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. He's saving us. Let's pray. Father, teach us to be more like Hannah here, desperately dependent upon you for the salvation that only you can give. Teach us to let go of our pretensions to strength and might and self-sufficiency. Help us to put our faith into great David's greater son, Jesus. Help us to live as his disciples, as his subjects in his kingdom, showing this world what you're like and where things are headed. We pray in his name. Amen.